The Guardian. Der Führer hat die Vernichtung des, die physische Vernichtung des Judentums befohlen. We'll make, it, make a stop here so the interpreter can translate. I was ordered to report to Heidrich and he informed me saying the Führer ordered the physical extermination of all Jews. On April 11, 1961, the Israeli government put the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. Um, I do not remember the details. Uh, the prosecution brought in a hundred witnesses to testify. Many were survivors of Nazi concentration camps. For 14 weeks, the trial made international headlines. Now the court would like you to identify those areas annexed to the Reich. Can you proceed with that kind of identification? The trial was set up by the Israeli prosecution to be not just a trial of Eichmann, but really a kind of bearing witness of the Holocaust itself. One of the trial's most famous witnesses was the philosopher Hannah Arendt. Arendt reported her observations in the New Yorker magazine. These essays were then collected in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. Elizabeth Young Bruel was one of Arendt's former students and her biographer. Hannah Arendt was not assigned by Wally Shawn, the editor of The New Yorker, to this task, but she had discussed it with him. She had wanted to go to this trial, and, and Shawn seized upon the opportunity of having her reported for his magazine, which he must have thought was the most incredible opportunity that had ever come his way. The Eichmann trial marks a major shift in Hannah Arendt's thinking. She departs from Jerusalem with a totally new theory of evil. When she wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism, which was published in 1951, she had subscribed to the idea that the Nazis were people who were what she called then, using a phrase of Immanuel Kant's, radically evil, meaning that they had some deep motive of evil doing. Uh, in their in their deeds. What struck her in Jerusalem was that this man, Eichmann, had nothing but what she considered to be banal motives, like how good it would be if he moved up in the Nazi bureaucracy, or how excellent it would be if he proved himself the perfect civil servant and obeyed every single one of Hitler's orders and carried out the programs of mass extermination with utmost efficiency. And they did not seem to be deep motives of lust for power or revenge or anything like that. She had begun to suspect uh, before she even went to Jerusalem that what she called thoughtlessness which is a kind of a banality of mind, a superficiality of mind, an inability to think, was a very widespread phenomenon. She called it an outstanding characteristic of our time in, the, in a book, 1958 book called The Human Condition. But there, before her very eyes, was exactly what she thought might be the case, that this kind of thoughtlessness and banality was very widespread. 
And she considered that to be more dangerous than the existence in societies of radically evil people. Eichmann was the most senior war criminal to be put on trial since Nuremberg. Most commentators held him personally responsible for the hundreds of thousands of people who died in Nazi death camps. His defense was that he was just a bureaucrat following orders, a man trying to make the trains run on time. And so when Hannah Arendt wrote that Eichmann was not evil but banal, many accused her of buying into his defense. But Arendt never once suggested that Eichmann was innocent. She wanted people to pay attention to his story, because his story, she believed, explained how ordinary people could be made to commit great acts of evil. This one man had a very particular story, and she tells it in enormous detail about how he came to overcome, as she puts it, his innate repugnance to crimes. That's her phrase. And that involved a process that took, as she says, four weeks from the moment that he learned that the final solution of the Jewish question was going to be state policy to the moment when he unhesitatingly signed on to that policy. Because at first, she says, when he went to actually see the preliminary killing operations in Poland, he was repelled. But something happened that allowed him to overcome that repugnance and sign up. And it's of very great interest to her. She says it is a political question of the first order, how that kind of transition can take place in a man. Wrong. Head. 105 volts. At precisely the same moment that Hannah Arendt began to formulate her idea of the banality of evil, an American social psychologist named Stanley Milgram began to test his idea about evil and its relationship with obedience. He devised an experiment to see if ordinary men could be made to commit evil. The trial of Eichmann closed on the 14th of August, 1961. A week earlier, the 7th of August, in uh, Connecticut, Yale, Yale University, Stanley Milgram, a social psychologist, had begun a series of experiments to look at issues of conformity and, as he would term it, obedience. Alex Haslam is a professor of social and organizational psychology at Exeter University. He says that the real power of Hannah Arendt's notion of the banality of evil comes from its connection to Stanley Milgram's groundbreaking experiments. It goes like this. The participant comes in off the street and they're given a task which is to train a another participant who's actually a confederate of the experimenter, but they don't know this, to learn some word pairs. And when the uh, person who's the participant gives this other person uh, a word, the, their job is to recall the word that's associated with it. Now, every time they make an error, the um, participant's job is to administer a shock to that other person. Incorrect. 150 volts. Just how far can you go in this thing? As far as is necessary. The shocks were fake. 
and so were the screams. But the ordinary men recruited off the street to administer the shocks didn't know this. And not a single one of these ordinary men was moved by the screams to stop. The big news story that came out of Milgram's study was that all of the participants in that study, 40 of them, were prepared to administer shocks up to a level of 315 volts, more than enough to kill a person. And a full uh, 65%, 26 of those 40 people, went right the way to the end of the scale. So what Milgram's study suggested was that normal, decent people off the street could be uh, induced with, with relatively little you know, encouragement or incitement to administer a lethal shock to another stranger because they were asked to do so simply by a, a person in a, in a, in a grey coat who was uh, operating as an experimenter in a science experiment. Stanley Milgram first published his research in 1963 in an article in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. This was the same year that Hannah Arendt published Eichmann in Jerusalem. When Milgram learned of Arendt's work, he famously stated that for him, this notion of the banality of evil came closer to the truth than one dared imagine. And so, Arendt's Eichmann and Milgram's shock gave birth to a really big idea that ordinary people can get caught up in their role within a bureaucratic system and thoughtlessly and carelessly commit evil. Independently, they had a lot of impact, but together they had really, I think, a, you know, an earth-shattering kind of impact. And that is an impact that's felt, I think, across society. So, you you know, you can see it in, in academic disciplines, you can see it in pop music, it's in art, it's in theatre. Um, and I think that really that model of evil and tyranny has really survived pretty much intact. It's been the dominant model for the last uh, 50 or so years. As far as I know, Hannah Arendt never commented on Stanley Milgram's work. She was really not very interested in what people do in contrived situations. Elizabeth Young Brule believes Hannah Arendt never commented on Milgram's work because she felt his flashy experiments shifted the focus away from the real story of Adolf Eichmann and fueled the controversy surrounding her new conception of evil. The controversy over Eichmann and Jerusalem was the most vivid illustration of exactly what she was talking about in Eichmann and Jerusalem. The way in which people stop thinking, take on received ideas, as she called them, and just operate with them. They don't even think. So <laughs> she, was, she was in the middle of a controversy which was characteristic of the way public discourse is carried on, that is, rather thoughtlessly. So the, there was a thoughtless controversy over a description of a mass-murdering bureaucrat as a thoughtless man. Alex Haslam agrees that the Milgram experiments do contribute to the creation of what has become a banal soundbite. But, he says, the problem was not with the empirical research or the masterful stagecraft, but rather the analysis. When people talk about the Milgram uh, research, they only ever really talk about the baseline study. That was the first one that he reported in 1963, the one which I've described in which 65% of people go right the way to the end. Well, actually, in, in the course of his research, Milgram was an incredibly diligent and dedicated researcher. He had about 40 variants. 20 of those are described in his 1974 book, Obedience to Authority. 
what you see is in those studies that you get variation between 100% of people going all the way to the end. And when does that happen? That happens when you don't hear anything from the learner who is being shocked. If you, if that learner's out of the picture, they're not saying anything or doing anything, then everybody goes to the end of the scale. At the other end of the spectrum, if the experimenters disagree or if two other participants refuse to acquiesce to the experimenters' instructions, then you get virtually no one uh, administering shocks right to the end. So within this paradigm, you get either 100% obedience or 0% obedience. And the question then is, well, what explains that variation? And when you look at it, what you can see, I think we've done some research of our own in testing this idea, what you see is that under those conditions which induce people to identify with the experimenter and the scientific project that he is carrying out, you get high levels of obedience. But if they hear um, alternative voices, the voice of the learner or the voice of dissenting participants, then they're less likely to obey or to go along with the experimenter. And in many cases, they show disobedience. So again, what this is showing to us is that this is not a thoughtless, mindless process. It's an active, engaged process that's predicated upon identification and a belief that what you're doing is right. And Arendt's analysis, Haslam says, suffers from the same problem. It fails to take into account the extent to which Eichmann relished doing his work. Eichmann did what he did because he really believed that he was doing right, not because he uh, didn't know that he was doing wrong. He knew what was going on. He, he celebrated what was going on. And at the end of it all, when he, just before he was hanged after his trial, he, the only regret he expressed was that he had not been more successful. So this was not someone who was a faceless bureaucrat. This was not someone who was uh, banal in any sense. But we have to recognize the limitations of the theoretical account that Arendt uh, initially proposed that Milgram then uh, developed because it really doesn't hold water. And I, and I do really think that it's holding us back in particular ways. And the question is, what is it that motivates followers to identify with a particular leadership and then display forms of followership which allow a leader's vision to be enacted? That's what made the Nazi system so dynamic was the sort of the engaged followership of people like Eichmann. Hannah Arendt did not attend the entire 14 weeks of the trial. And some commentators go as far as to suggest that this is why she missed the true evil of Eichmann. I don't think she missed that by missing the whole trial. What happened subsequently in the trial and uh, the transcript of the trial was all available uh, to her. Um, and I don't think from my own acquaintance with those documents that there was something that came out in the, t in the time when she wasn't actually there that was uh, significant. What is significant, I think, is that, it, that there have been so many efforts since the trial and since the controversy over her book so many efforts to prove the psychopathology of Eichmann. Sometimes, sometimes people will say radical evil, but more frequently it's psychopathology. Hannah Arendt's critics have been making the same argument for 50 years now. Supposed documents she wasn't aware of or new evidence. These are red herrings, Elizabeth Young Bruhl says. 
The real problem critics have with Arendt's notion of the banality of evil, she says, is that it forces us to rethink how mass murder, genocide, happens. As the kids say, people do not want to wrap their minds around this. But to my mind, the import and the importance of what she had to say, uh, people come up on it and then they turn away. And uh, they, they walk back to some more acceptable to them position. He was a psychopath. I think the banality of evil is an interesting uh, phrase. It does help us understand that the small people commit evil. But where people say, I, I was just a cog in the wheel 10, 15 years after the event, my natural tendency is to think, well, I've heard this before. Um, and, and no, you won't. David Hurst is The Guardian's foreign leader writer. He says he shies away from words like evil, mostly because of his training in the Northern Ireland conflict. But in the early 90s, he witnessed the horrors of genocide firsthand, reporting on the front lines in Slovenia. And this idea of a banality of evil, he says, was grossly inadequate. I was covering this from day to day, uh, trying to find out basically why you know, one end of a village was fighting another. And I asked very, very simple and basic questions, which sort of revealed my ignorance of what was going on locally. Um, and I asked, for instance, the Serb side and the um, Croatian side of the village um, whether, in fact, um, there was a history of local discrimination, whether the Serbs got the jobs or the Croatians got the jobs or, or, or whatever, in a, in a local bread factory. I said, no, no, absolutely none of that. And I went, I did a sort of North Island checklist of sort of disadvantage, discrimination. I couldn't find local reasons for why there was this really big barricade, armed barricade, right through Main Street, right through the centre, literally dissected it. Uh, and this line was getting more and more active and eventually there was a tank battle and eventually uh, the whole place was overrun. Um, uh, and what happened was that uh, the soldiers were um, emptying people from uh, the uh, local hospital and shooting them. And it was, a, it was a real massacre. But each time, what, what preceded uh, these events were claims that you could never justify but had that sense of exaggeration that you sort of almost doubted the sanity of the people who were, who were telling you this. There were people who honestly believed that the other side were running around with, with necklaces uh, made of children's teeth. So what I mean is that you actually had a discourse uh, and a narrative which is very, very firmly implanted on either side's minds, which to, to, to a modern um, European mind bore absolutely no relationship to reality, but it sure was real then. So the banality of evil as a concept has to be widened. It doesn't actually help as a journalistic or, or analytical tool.
You can read more about the banality of evil, including an essay from the philosopher Judith Butler on The Guardian's Comment is Free website. For The Guardian's Big Ideas podcast, I'm Benjamin Walker. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.